0: Good day, everyone. Welcome to the CSU Relentless Gardener podcast. I am Colorado State University Area Specialist in Horticulture, Linda Langelo. And joining me today is Derek Laustutter, CSU Agriculture and Food Systems Specialist. Now let us get to the heart of it, where we explore the horticulture topic of edible landscapes. Hello, Derek. How are you?
1: Hi. Good morning. I'm good. Thanks. How about you?
0: Great. Glad you could do this. Uh, yeah. Happy to be here. So, describe for the audience what a picture of an edible landscape would look like.
1: Uh, really, it could be a lot of different things. Uh, just based on the topic, the main thing would be tasty. You want to have species in there that you know are are um palatable to you and uh you know the other people that you might be growing it for but aside from that there's not a prescription for edible landscaping um thankfully in colorado there's a lot of different plants that are available to us that depending upon your tastes and how much work you want to put into the landscape uh there's lots of different ways to go about it so it could be you know, something that looks a little more naturalized, like kind of a a natural woodland or prairie even, Uh, or you could get really, um, you know, well-maintained with straight rows and defined color palettes and things like that. So really it depends on um, the taste, the literal taste of the person planting it, as well as the aesthetic taste that they have, what what they would like to grow.
0: That actually sounds like a lot of research for a gardener to go through. Are are there to are,
1: to find out what what species might taste good to them or um
0: all of it what all
1: could of, grow in their area? Yeah,
0: yeah, all all of it. Yes. Yes. I Yeah, I,
1: it, it certainly can be.
0: When I lived in Holyoke, the the idea of a, an edible landscape to me was to add vegetables in with my herbaceous perennials and you know the benefit was pollination so so what are Mm -hmm. what are some of the benefits of of all of these different types of mixed edible landscapes
1: sure a lot a lot of it is is diversity and and diversity can be a good thing if you're willing to uh, to kind of plan for it, and and ideally, in my opinion, an edible landscape would have all the above. So that could be annual flowers, fruits, and vegetables. Um, you know, like kind of the annual, maybe bedding plants that you're growing for the visual impact, as well as pollinators. Um, certainly, the the fruits and vegetables that we grow uh, typically in our garden uh, as annuals. Uh, but then certainly, if we're able to incorporate perennial. Uh, fruits, flowers, and vegetables even, then that opens up a lot more options to provide uh, services and additional tastes or um, or food products that we wouldn't have if we were just kind of sticking with that kind of classic garden uh, collection of of species and varieties.
0: What are some of your favorite edible plants?
1: Some of my favorite edible plants, Um, that's a great question. And really it depends on where where I'm growing. Um, So I have uh, kind of a set of species and varieties that I like to grow, but I wanna make sure that they could do well in whatever site I'm in. So even if it's something that I enjoy the taste of, Uh, I have to make sure that it grows well in my area and I'm willing to do any work that's necessary to get it to grow well and be prolific for what I'm wanting to eat. So, um, you know, really, it's important to familiarize yourself with the growing conditions. So that could be the soil, like whether it's really well drained or if it's clay, high organic matter, low organic matter, um, how much sunlight it gets and whether that's throughout the day. Uh, also what, what challenges you might face where you're wanting to grow. So it could be water uh, access during establishment of those plants and also drought. There's a lot of species that once they're established, they, uh, they can do well. But if there's a drought, uh, especially over multiple seasons, um, giving them a shot of water every once in a while might be necessary to keep them alive. But then after that drought, they're able to recover without any supplemental watering. Um, things like wildlife browse, so a lot of things that are uh, palatable to us are palatable to to wildlife, whether it's deer, or birds, rabbits, that kind of thing, um, and then also maintenance requirements like training or pruning. These are all considerations that you need to um, think of when you're trying to select what species would be would be best for you. Um, and so that said, that kind of disclaimer. Um, there's some excellent edible plants for, for Colorado, and I stick to uh, perennials uh, because they often require less work in the long term and provide additional services for soil and landscape impact and also pollination, like you, you mentioned. Um, so just a few of my favorites uh, are Juneberries. And Juneberries have a lot of different names. They're kind of like a mountain lion. You know, they have like a dozen different names depending upon where you are. Um, so things like Shadlow, Serviceberry, Juneberry, Serviceberry, uh, all of that. Um, it's all the same uh, same plant. Might not be the same species, but uh, it's still that um, that beautiful uh, deciduous, you know, broadleaf shrub that has beautiful white flowers and then blueberry-like fruit which are which are delicious and in my opinion they're they're even tastier than blueberries and certainly do better in Colorado soils. Um, There's currants and gooseberries. Uh, They kind of got out of favor um, in the U.S. due to concerns being a host for um, a rust that uh, impacts white pine species but now, there's been um, breeding efforts in both currants and gooseberries and the white pine that that's not as much of an issue and certainly not in Colorado. Um, in most cases, that's that's not gonna be an issue for anyone. It just means that we don't have the you know, multi-generations of people making like black currant pie or something like that, that we would with an apple pie or something like that. Um, there's dwarf cherries. Um, there's lots of different uh, selections that have been made for that. There's some great ones that have come out of Canada. Um, so like Carmine Jewel or the Romance series. Uh, so there's Romeo, Juliet, Cupid um, that have great visual impact and uh, and very tasty. They're considered tart cherries, but still they're, they're very edible, um, fresh just off the shrub if you want to do uh, do it that way. Uh, and then some of my favorites that are less well-known are things like, uh, hascaps, which are also known as, uh, honey berries. They're a special edible kind of honeysuckle, not typical honeysuckle. Um, they're very, very cold hardy. They actually grow better where it's cold. Um, and they have a very, uh, Tasty uh, berry with complex flavor, kind of like a blueberry and raspberry mixed. Uh, there's also aronia, which is uh, also called black choke berry. So instead of choke cherry, which is also edible, uh, this is choke uh, berry. Uh, beautiful plant. It's available in a lot of garden centers as an ornamental. So there's been selections made for different. Um, leaf colors and shapes um and and berries so uh, they can be fairly astringent Uh, they can dry the mouth out like a choke cherry if you try to eat it but um has very fine seeds so you can just eat the whole berry very prolific for the most part wildlife leave it alone um and i've never had you know a deer mow down aronia that i have uh other other plants like like service berry um so yeah there's there's literally dozens. So re- my favorite is one that I can grow in the area I'm trying to grow in with with minimal work. I try to be pretty lazy in my uh edible landscaping. I want it to be you know, I want to plant it and have it grow well and produce fruit with minimal work on my part.
0: And I think with the amount of plants that you just listed like you said prior there is a wide range of diversity where you could pick exactly what your location needs Put put it in get it started and walk away and yeah good, good point about the wildlife would you maybe plant an extra in some of the shrubs because you know, how can you stop the birds from coming in when it's going to be a harsh winter and just devastating, you know, your crop? There's,
1: there's yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. It's, and it can be tricky for, for deer. um, It can be especially hard. So a fence that deer either can't make it over or don't want to make it over. So if they can't see the opposite side of the fence, you know, they're not going to make that gamble. Um, and then there's there's plants that supposedly are deer resistant, but that's why they say, you know, deer resistant, not deer proof, because something's going to get tasted. So even if they don't eat it, they might taste it. They might, you know, walk along. I've had, you know, deer walk along and pull Tomato transplants out of the ground. They didn't eat anything of it. They just walk along. They taste one. Oh, that's not very good. I'll taste another one, and then they go down the line and pull them out of the ground. Um, and so stuff like that can happen with with a lot of different plants. So um, it's it's always a risk that what we're planting is gonna you know um, die due to due to wildlife or other factors outside of our control. But we can plan based on the species we select as well as where we plant them. So I have a fenced backyard that deer uh, do not get into. So there's some stuff that I'll plant there that I um, I wouldn't even try in my front yard, which has a lot of deer traffic. Um, And then there's also uh, deer repellent sprays, they have to be, you know, reapplied regularly, um, either homemade or commercially bought, there's lots of different ones available and then uh as far as birds go to your point with birds some you you just have to net if you want to have fruit from them uh you you're going to have to net them especially with uh with hascap with honeyberries every uh every plant that i put in if i haven't netted it i don't get anything off of it. I might get some of the little berries that the birds um, don't don't find or, you know, scare them away. I just happen to be there at the right point. Um, But often there's things that uh, things will start to ripen. The birds get the kind of the mental cue that, oh, that's a ripe fruit and they'll eat it before it's ripe enough for us to really eat. So, um, you know, it's not something that you need to Really um, beat yourself up about before you plant. You need to kind of think ahead. But in some in some places it might be a problem, and in others it might not. So it'll just be that ad- adaptive approach that you can plant these plants, um, and then if you have an issue with wildlife, then try to think of ways that you can deal with them at the time.
0: Or I suppose you could uh, feed them. You know, outside of. That the garden area and hope that they wouldn't devastate your shrubs.
1: Right, right. So uh, a lot of songbirds, they like the fruit because of the sugar, but they also like um, seeds for the fat. And so it depends on what species of bird you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, you can kind of have a decoy, you can feed them somewhere ideally off your outside the area that you're trying to uh, get them away from Uh, but in some cases I've seen that that backfire if it's too close to the plants you want to protect because it's it's pulling in additional birds that might not be there otherwise so it'll it'll be some trial and error and there'll be things that might work for one person but not another person and that's and that's fine you just need to you know, recognize it, not take it personally. If you grow delicious fruit and the birds want to eat it.
0: That just says you're a great gardener.
1: (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, you're growing excellent fruit and everyone wants some.
0: (laughs) So what, if anything, would you avoid or be cautious of when planning an edible landscape?
1: Sure. there would be some of those issues that we talked about before. Um, so if you're if you're planting a shrub that really likes a few inches more water um, a year than you you can um, then what your area provides, then you want to make sure that you have some way to supplement the water. Um, and also soil types. You know, you, if there's a soil, uh, if you really clay soil, you don't want to plant something that. Um, is gonna get root rot in in clay or can't uh, handle the heave from the clay soils. Um, so that's just kind of some planning ahead. But then also one thing that I try to be very cautious of is not mixing uh, edible uh, species with toxic. So you can you can mix um, you know inedible species with with edible, you just wanna stay away from toxic ones that might produce um, a fruit or a vegetable that someone unwittingly unwittingly might ingest. So uh, an example is like rhubarb that a lot of people grow. Uh, I think it's a beautiful plant, uh, but you wanna make sure that you eat the, the stems the petiole of the leaf and not the leaf itself, which can uh, be toxic in in some quantities. So there's some things like that that just requires a little bit of education on, but there are some things that I really, really try to stay away from because if there is a mistake made, then it can cause significant health issues or even death. Um, So for example, um, there's yews, uh, evergreen shrubs that have a little um, potentially tasty-looking berry on them. Uh, things like castor, uh, castor bean, uh, belladonna, uh, angel trumpet, some uh, honeysuckles, and things like that that produce uh, fruit that might look appealing visually because it might look, you know, plump or like a nice red berry. But uh, it can be fatal if if ingested in in high enough quantity. So, you might, as a gardener, be aware of those species. But if you move away or have to sell your home, you don't want someone um, making a mistake like that uh, just because they don't have that experience. Uh, and it can certainly scare them away from trying any of the uh, edible things if they if they are aware of that you know. You shouldn't eat a berry from a yew, and they see that right next to a juneberry for example and they assume oh you know i'm not going to try that juneberry um because they ju- they assume that there's there's dangerous plants in the landscape and they don't want to take that risk another issue to stay away from is potential invasiveness and that's with any any plant you put in your landscape you want to make sure that it's not going to escape your yard and create an issue. Um, so you know, like uh, myrtle spurge or or leafy spurge um, that was originally planted for its ornamental value, um, and then it's kind of spread and become an invasive weed issue. There's uh, some some uh, plants like autumn olive or absinthe wormwood that. Um, that are potentially edible, or you can use them as flavorings or garnish uh, and can be very attractive plants. But you wanna make sure that where you're planting them, if you do plant them, they're not going to uh, to escape. So one species that I didn't mention um, before, I don't think is sea buckthorn, also called sea berry. Uh, it produces a very nutritious um, berry and it's very prolific. So Often the harvesting method is clipping off entire branches loaded with fruit because it, it takes too much time to pick them off the, the branch individually. And they can be invasive in the right environment if um you know if there's adequate moisture outside outside your landscape, or if it, if there's really excellent soil um that it can spread into. Um so a lot of these plants, if they if they have good Good enough growing conditions, they will seed themselves, or they'll reproduce through suckering. So that's something to be aware of if you don't want, you know, like a choke cherry uh, suckering up in your yard, or the sea buckthorn little seedlings popping up in your yard. Um, that's something to steer clear of, also. So the main issues are the toxicity and then also the invasiveness.
0: And and while you were talking, I thought about, you know herbs as being integrated in gardens whether you have a shaded more shaded area or or something that you have full sun so Mm -hmm.
1: yeah absolutely that can be annual herbs like basil or perennial ones like mint Um, and especially if you let them go to uh, go to seed or at least flower in your Yard. they can provide um, a food source for pollinators and other beneficial insects. But I, I do like that all of the above approach, combining annual and perennial um, you know everything from ground covers to, uh, to trees and shrubs. There's, there's so many plants that we can that we can grow here. And usually if you have that diversity, one, I think it's more fun uh, to, to grow in that environment and then you, you maximize the potential benefits and minimize the risk. It can be a little more work, especially in the start, but once you figure out what species go well together in your landscape and what you enjoy eating and growing, then you can na- maybe narrow that down into fewer species that you really love.
0: Well, I think you just described some of the differences between an edible landscape and other landscapes. I mean other other landscapes, if you think about it, are just more aesthetic with you know, mass plantings perhaps, or they're xeric and like water wise, you want to put the plants in a the the all like plants that need like watering in one section and those that don't low water requirements all altogether in another section. So are there any other examples that we can give the audience? As far as the differences between those go, uh,
1: I think one of them would be um, the the expectation of the fruit. So there's some species like uh, currants and gooseberries and the sea berry that I mentioned before that um, they can produce fruit. Uh, But they won't necessarily be prolific fruiters. They won't produce a lot of of fruit, uh, or the fruit might be kind of dry and unpalatable if um, if it's not maintained. So that might require some additional pruning, some additional shots of water. So just because something can grow in an environment doesn't mean that it'll be healthy and vigorous enough to produce the amount and quality of fruit that you'd want. So that would be a one concern um, or one main difference in between traditional landscaping as well as edible landscaping. Uh, certainly with traditional more aesthetic based landscaping, you would have to do some pruning to you know, reduce disease occurrence and improve growth form on some of those plants. But for edible landscaping, it might be the difference in between making something just look good and making something taste good.
0: And what about fertilization?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent point. That's a a similar issue. So you might uh, you know, fertilize a landscape for a good vegetative gr- growth you know, good um, dark green leaves uh, and make sure that it's growing vigorously so that it can combat uh, any disease or pest issues. With edible uh, landscaping, in some cases, if you over fertilize, you can um, reduce, you know, the fruiting. So it causes things to become over vegetative. So it can be similar to a tomato. So, if you overfeed a tomato at the wrong stage of its life cycle, it produces a lot of green, lush growth, um, but it doesn't set as much fruit because the plant is is trying to put all of its energy into growing vegetatively instead of the fruit. So it depends on what plant you're growing and what part of the plant you're harvesting to eat. Um, it would impact the nutrients that you provide, and then also the timing of the fertilizer application. So whether you're trying to incentivize that vegetative growth cycle or the fruiting and uh, flowering and fruiting cycle.
0: Where would people go to learn more about suitable edible plants for these gardens and how to care for them?
1: Yeah, I always encourage people to go go to their local extension office because this is a more common uh, topic. So every year there's more people becoming interested in growing food locally and being more involved in that process. And certainly COVID-19 had something to do with that as people were wanting to invest more in their property as well as uh, have a more secure local food system. So I always encourage uh, both uh, ex- the private and public contacts so um, so by that public that would be you know CSU Extension, Master Gardener programs. There's a lot of information available at the local office in person as well as online. There's um, hundreds of excellent garden notes that, that provide a lot of information on on example edible flowers. So if you want To grow flowers for the aesthetics and pollinators um, there's a lot that you can um, you can do that and you can also harvest the flowers as a garnish um, or even a flavoring depending upon flower Uh, also there's lots of other uh, state extension uh, agencies in in other states that have similar growing conditions that can give you some ideas of what might be suitable in your location so for those uh, people that are in more high country colorado they might want to look at um, what has been put out by like montana or north dakota for species that would be more suitable for their uh, cold hardiness zone there's some caveats with that because it's not just the amount of cold it's how hot it gets also uh, it gets warmer in those locations um, than often the high-elevation Colorado locations. Uh, and then, for example, there's a, a a cookbook that I co-authored from North Dakota Extension. It's a windbreak cookbook, which includes kind of the cultural requirements the, for growing different species that could be suitable in a windbreak, and then also some recipes for how you might uh, incorporate those um, into your diet. So there's, there's the two halves of that, the physically growing the plants and also once you grow it, how are you going to use it?
0: Very good. That sounds like a lot of good resources that people can use. And yeah,
1: yeah. There's a lot out there.
0: And that, you know, I would suggest too, that, um, you know, where people live, go and look at their native habitat and see what's kind of growing together and and then go to their nursery and talk more about it. And and just, you know, like you said, use all these resources and really educate yourself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And And just because something is native doesn't mean that it's not something that we can eat. So there's native you know, currants and and gooseberries, they might be um, less fruitful than the other varieties or the hybrids, but they can still provide a lot of services, uh, arguably more ecosystem services. um, And then they still produce a very delicious edible fruit. And then uh, for going out and looking in the the immediate landscape from what, what might grow well, there's some wild plants like sumac, or even bur oak that with the right processing there's there's edible products that can be harvested from those as well so excellent point yeah
0: or gamble oaks too mm-hmm. yeah
1: yep yeah. certainly
0: there was a uh when i lived in holyoke we had gamble oaks in the medians in front of the house and there was a korean woman and she came and she said can i have all these nuts and i said Go for it, and uh, they boiled them. Yeah. You know, it, it was a yep. it was a neat experience. You know, they they incorporated them in into their diet, which is wonderful. And I think that's you know, whatever culinary uses we can make of these things, just makes us healthier, and along with the landscape.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If if people are getting a food from their landscape, they're more likely to take care of it. they' they'd be more invested in 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 maintaining it and keeping it healthy. And then if something dies, then they'll be more likely to replace it than to just kind of let it go. Um, so so, yeah, and I, I love that that example of the gamble oak in the median because it's it can often be these underutilized species uh, and and some things even like a uh, crab apple. They've, a lot of crab apples have been selected over the last few decades to either be fruitless or to have really small, hard fruits. But the earlier varieties of ornamental crab apple, they might produce an apple that might not taste great right off the tree, but with some processing, it can be great for making juice or applesauce or jams, that kind of thing. And then one of the, the most unique uh, tasting cookies I ever had, it was uh, bur oak flour and black walnuts. So they diced up some black walnuts that were grown in the city. Um, and uh, it, was, it wasn't it was the best cookie. It, it still tasted good. It wasn't the best cookie I ever had, but it was the most unique. And I really enjoyed eating it just because of that.
0: Well, wow, I have both of those in my yard, so maybe I should look into them.
1: Yeah, here you go. That
0: would be cool. Well, what would you have gardeners consider heirlooms? Because, you know, um, they're not crossed and they have a fruit that has more taste to it. And then the fruits aren't, you know, like you were saying, smaller, or What, what have you. Would would you consider some of those?
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly. There's there's advantages and disadvantages of going with heirlooms. Most of them have been developed over decades or even hundreds of years. So, uh, especially if they were developed locally, they might be very well suited to the, the location that you're in. Uh, and also, they're you know kind of open source. Uh, you don't have to pay like a royalty or anything to propagate it. uh, You can make changes to it however you want. Whereas these hybrids, they often select for certain attributes that might not be your highest priority. So it might be disease resistance to a disease disease that really isn't an issue in your area. Um, Or, you know, they might go for aesthetics over flavor or the size of the fruit, which is what you would be looking for. So, you know, once you figure out what what type of growing environment uh, you're growing in, and then what species and varieties you would like to plant, then you know think think about whether you want to go with hybrid or um, you know like a an asexually propagated plant that uh, you know might be copyright copyrighted. So you you know if you're taking a cutting from something. It's not likely that you're going to get caught, but I have spoken with people that, you know, they were contacted because they were taking clippings and and propagating them and selling them. Relatively small scale still, but it was enough for the owner of that license to find out. So it's something to be aware of. Um, so again, pros and cons, I won't say that you know, the heirlooms are going to taste better or grow better than the hybrids or the privately owned selections. Um, but it, it just takes familiarizing yourself with what's available and and what you want to prioritize.
0: How do you feel about the term native ours? Would you mm. encourage people to have some of those in their edible landscapes?
1: Certainly. Yeah, I think it's important to maintain that genetic diversity. So that's one thing that can be lost with some of these breeding programs for either annual or perennial crops is that by selecting for those different traits, they're minimizing the gene pool. And so if you can have um, a plant that, you know, you select for, or it's a native that can produce fruit, you're maintaining that that gene pool of, you know, the entire population potentially, and not just these varieties or cultivars that have been selected for these individual traits.
0: And recently I read uh, Doug Tallamy uh, says that if you're going to use those nativars, to do 80% native plants and 20% native ours to have a good balance.
1: Yeah, I could see the the reasoning in that.
0: Well, yeah. is...
1: cuz uh, often one thing that I've come across with the the native ours, kind of the the selected natives is that they might not have the longevity um, that 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 the natives do. So you know, there's a lot of for for example, it's not necessarily edible, although you can process it. Echinacea, uh, cone If you have uh, the native cone flower, is very very hardy, can tolerate a, a wide range of soils and water conditions, but the um, those that have been selected for different flower patterns and colors that might last well for a year or two, and then they die out. They're just not as hardy. So I do think that idea of mixing the straight natives with the selective natives is a good idea. So you're maximizing the benefits and minimizing the risk.
0: And one thing that uh, Alan Armitage uh, has has spoken about is that with coneflowers, people go out and they might buy them in the middle of July and they don't get a very big plant and they're trying to, to get them to become established and overwinter. And then when spring comes, they're disappointed because they haven't. And so Mm -hmm. he teaches that, you know, get the biggest pot you can get like a gallon size or, or larger and put them in, in early spring and you'll have better success, but they're still short-lived. Now, I did read something uh, in Mount Cuba studies that said starting cone flowers from seed gives them that longevity, but they didn't say, you know, how long that longevity is, so I guess, you know, try it, and if you like it, see, and if not, well, you tried.
1: <laughs> you tried, you know, yeah, because any plant, no matter what, is going to have a lifespan. Even if it's taken care of its entire life, uh, it's going to die out after a little while. So that's a consideration to make when you're planning these landscapes is how often am I going to have to go back in and plant it? With some stuff, it's it's obvious. Uh, you know, I know I'm going to have to seed and plant tomatoes every year. Uh But how often am I going to have to replace a, you know, like a dwarf cherry that might live, you know, 10 or 20 years and that's a full, you know, good, good lifespan for that plant. Uh, So it depends on how long you're planning on managing that landscape and then what you might, uh, you know, what you might change it to after those plants are, are replaced naturally.
0: And I think there's just about one thing that you can't in colorado at least avoid which is hail i mean i don't i don't know how you you come back from that over time
1: yeah yeah and for a lot of these perennials you know they can be completely defoliated and as long as they don't have other underlying health issues they can come back back uh, so if there's an issue, you know, with the root system or the branches or the leaves, as far as like disease or damage pests, uh, they can, they can bounce back, especially from, uh, a hail, uh, it might stress them for a year or two, but they can come back from it. Obviously if you're growing annuals and they get pummeled by hail, you know, I've had some squash plants and stuff that come back from it, but it's it's not going to be uh, as productive. And I have seen some people in hail prevalent areas putting up kind of a, a trellis or a pergola that they can um, hang some netting from to reduce hail damage. But, um, you know, some of those freak hailstorms, um, you know, it's just like locusts or anything else in the natural environment. Unfortunately, we can kind of Uh, reduce the damage but we can't eliminate it
0: yeah we have absolutely no control
1: (laughs) yeah yeah
0: well thank you Derek this has been fun
1: thank you yeah I I really enjoyed uh, visiting with you about this topic
0: thank you to the audience for listening tune in next time when we get to the heart of the matter on another horticultural topic